0: we'll be seeing that song again coming up before too long here so maybe we'll get drums next time well done i got to tell you i'm i'm just constantly amazed at our god anybody else amazed at our god i'm amazed at how he answers prayer I'm, I'm amazed at how he provides before we even ask i'm amazed at how he graciously does not give us what we ask at times amen And I'm amazed constantly at how he provides for his body, the church, by providing the gifts that are needed to do the work that he requires. But it only works when we're all in it together, when we all come together as a body with every supporting ligament helping the body to grow up in him. Uh, Just... I, I love to write. I, love, I used to write a lot of poetry. I love music. I couldn't write songs like this. That's something that God's delivered to be able to accomplish what He wants to have happen here. When we look at the great hymns of the faith, from Charles Wesley and Isaac Watts and so many others, these are gifts of God to the church for the building up of our faith. This is an exciting thing. And I want to challenge you as, as a body of believers. So many of us today sort of cast aside the hymns. Oh, that's, that's old stuff. We don't, we don't need that. I want to challenge you to look at old hymns with new eyes. To see the beauty and the power of the content of those hymns. And the passion for the Lord that led to them being written. This has nothing to do at all with the sermon today. This was completely free. So, let's get on to what we came here for. In chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, Paul turns his attention from our position in Christ to our practice in Christ. But notice as we go that even the practice, even the, the living out of the Christian life is an inside job. It's what's inside coming to the outside. What we do flows out of who we are. Today we'll be looking at what Paul says in verse 29 specifically, and we'll see this core reality as we go through it. The words that come out of us must reflect and flow from God's character in us. The words that come out of us must reflect and flow and flow from God's character in us. So as we're looking at this, uh, I want to just kind of state something that's fairly obvious, I think. But just in case it's not, I want to make sure we all catch it. One way or another, the words that come out of us do reflect what is in us, right? Right? If I drop a bucket down into a well and draw up water, I can only get what is in there. I can't get something that's not in there. And whatever is in there, I will inevitably draw up. If that water is poisoned, guess what's going to be in my bucket? So already, before we even get started, several of you are uncomfortable and squirming in your seats and wishing I would shut up. And you know who you are. And it's probably a lot of us. Because I get uncomfortable even preparing this. And, and as I was walking through this just myself, I realized as so often I'm preaching to the mirror. That God is speaking to me. Now I don't tend to have a, a problem with foul words. That's not something that was part of my Growing up, so it's not really a habit. But I have lots of other speech patterns that have been, shall we say, less than honorable to my master, and less than reflective of Christ's character. We're going to spend some more time looking at some specifics in a different week. So I'm going to try to get a big picture grip on this today, and hopefully, uh, hopefully this will connect with you. So. The words that come out of us must reflect and flow from God's character in us. Because I don't think I'll develop it well later. I want to just take a moment to say that the things that that we address here, if we get good speech because we have a disciplined life, but it doesn't flow from the Spirit of God in us, then while it is beneficial in that it's not tearing folks down the same way, it does not gain us any merit with God. You are not closer to God because you don't cuss than you are, if you do, when your heart is far from Him. Let Let me put this another way. Everything that I'm saying today everything that Paul is writing here is specifically for the church. He's speaking to Christians. So if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you belong to Christ, you haven't come to this place of of recognizing that you are reborn, your entire life, who you are in yourself is gone, dead. And you've been raised to a new life in Him by the power of God and the grace of God then understand that what I'm saying here is something that that is for you to understand, but it's not going to change your life if you just talk nice. Many of us, many of us even right now in this room, are good at controlling what comes out of my mouth by putting a cork in it while it's still boiling up inside. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Have you been there where those words want to come out and I'm I'm biting my lip because Grandma's here. We don't want that to happen, right? But if I'm alone, it might come out. But I'm going to control myself. I'm going to get that willpower. Oh, don't say that. The whole time, the thoughts are still there. Bubbling and boiling inside. I'm not going to say that to that person, because that wouldn't be nice. But I'm going to think it. Well, I'm going to type out that, that tweet or that Facebook post, and I'm going to hit delete, because that could blow back on me, so you know not, that's not good. But I didn't hit delete in my heart. I'm still holding on to that. We talked about removing resentment previously. I want to suggest to us that all of these things interact together? Over the last three weeks, we've looked at Paul's specific admonitions about putting off the old self, taking out the trash, and putting on the new, walking worthy of the calling we've received as God's chosen and adopted children in Christ. Let's just back up real quickly and review. Look at Ephesians 4 verse 1. Paul writes, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Then he goes on to detail that. So remember, the first three chapters, Paul has established our identity in Christ, who we are, our position, what God has done in us. Again, he's writing to the church. He's writing to believers, those who are called the holy ones, those set apart for God by faith in Christ. And he says, if you're in Christ... If you're a believer if this is the, if this is your heart here's why it's because God has chosen you and he has adopted you he set his affection on you not because of anything you did heaven's know but because of his grace toward you because the love of God is so vast the love of Christ toward us is so high and and just deep and wide and long and overwhelming and indescribable that His love pours out onto His people. And He took His people out of who we were and built us together to be His dwelling place, His temple. We were dead in our sin all of us. No exceptions. Nobody was better than somebody else in case you thought that 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 super nice lady who came to Christ did so because she was better than you. No. Not at all. When you're dead, unlike in the Princess Bride, you're all the way dead. Right? There's no part way. You're not kind of dead. In our sin, we are dead. In fact, he says in, in chapter 2 that we are by our very nature objects of wrath. Another rendering says that we're children of wrath and really highlights that difference between being children of God adopted by His choice and children of wrath by our nature. That's an important parallel to see. We are not, by our nature, children of God. We're not born of God the way Jesus is, as the only begotten, the only natural Son of God. The rest of us, when we're born again, when we are born of God, it's by His choice, and we're adopted by Him, by grace. Through faith, we take hold of it by believing it, not of works. So there's no room for boasting. But in this, if you have seen it, and you have taken hold of it, and you have become His, He calls us His workmanship, His masterpiece. Now with that picture in our minds, we need to be seeing, for one, as Paul says, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you've received, to live a life that is worthy of, of this calling, you're not earning it, you're not impressing God, you don't get to religion your way into heaven, but because you have been made His child, live like it. Live like who you are, not like who you were. So then he continues excuse me We move down to verse 17 of chapter 4. He says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now Paul's gone to great lengths to make sure we understand there's no difference between Jew and Gentile in Christ. So he's referring to those who were Gentiles prior to being in Christ, those who were living apart from the Lord. You could, for your own purposes, put in there the word unbelievers or pagans or heathens. Those who who are not interested in following God, who do the natural thing, following the flesh. As he said in chapter 2, whether you realize it or not, you're under the dominion, the rule, the control of the one controlling this world. The rebel, the squatter, the devil. When I do what is natural to my flesh, I am living under the control of my enemy not under the control of the Lord. And that's our natural state. Jesus said in John three eighteen, every one of us stands condemned already. You don't have to choose to reject God. You already exist in rejection of God. The only thing that saves us is believing in the name of His one and only Son, putting our hope there, He is our parachute. We have no other hope. Now, Paul's saying here in verse 17, don't live like that anymore. That's who you were. In the futility of their thinking, verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are greedy for more, the NIV says, and they are full of greed, but the implication here seems clear that they have a continual lust for more and more of their natural satisfaction, pursuing my way instead of God's way. He goes on in verse 20, that, however, is not the way of life you learned, You Ephesians, I came and preached to you for three years. I taught you the truth of the gospel. You learned the way of Christ accurately. That's not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, to take out the trash. That's not you anymore, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. To put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So he hits that, that nail again here in verse 25. Therefore each of you must put off falsehood. There's a putting off. There's a removing in these things. Don't do that. Do this. And speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, as we've walked through this over the last three weeks, we've explored the reality that there is more to this than just the doing of the things. It's not just change your behavior, it's that your inner person, the reality of who you are, is in Christ. Therefore, these things don't belong to you anymore. Those are clothes tailor-made for your old life, and they don't fit you now. Get rid of them. Put them off. Let the new you be on display let the new you shine through if you will and as as Paul is saying this we saw the first week that that we are to put off falsehood we are to dump dishonesty we got to get that out of us and it's more than just an overt lie it's a dishonesty in our heart that manifests itself in many different ways fix that dump it it's not you anymore. And then we, we talked about removing resentment. You're going to be angry. That's going to happen. You're going to have emotions, but don't let your emotions drive. Don't let them take control of you. When you harbor that anger, when you hold on to that, when you refuse to let it go, you're putting the devil in the driver's seat of your life. You're giving him a foothold, a place to have control of you. Remove that resentment. Resentment. Last week we talked about this idea of getting rid of greed. It's more than just stealing something that is yours. That you know, I see that you've got uh, you know something I want—a custard-filled donut—and I sneak up and snatch it. Right? We can all recognize that that is stealing of the most heinous kind when you're taking my custard-filled donut. But we don't. Look at the attitude beneath it. In the Ten Commandments, stealing is there, but the greater command is don't covet. Stop lusting after that which does not belong to you. And we steal many things, including stealing God's glory when we try to live righteously apart from Him. There's an inside element to all of these things, and we have to recognize that these clothes don't fit us anymore. This is the trash still in the trash can, stinking up the kitchen. You gotta take it out. You gotta get rid of that stuff because what's inside doesn't match. We gotta get this right. And so, as we look at at those connections here, we can recognize that, that those first three seem pretty big, right? Considering that they, they all find their home in the top ten list of commandments, right? So, you know, we see this uh, looking at, at, at verse 25, don't lie. Okay, we see that in the top, top ten there. Thou shalt not lie, okay? Thou shalt not bear false witness. That's pretty clear must be a big one because God's got it on the short list. What about the anger? Jesus said that anger in your heart is like murder in your hands. Well, we see thou shalt not murder in that top ten. That's pretty clear. And Jesus said very clearly in his Sermon on the Mount, you heard don't murder, but I'm telling you, if you hold on to that anger with your brother... You're guilty of murder the same as the guy that did it in his hands. That actually killed him because you've killed him a thousand times in your heart. Oh, I would never do that. I forgive them and I love them. Sure you do. That's why you keep talking about them. That's why you won't let go of that thought. That's why even though you would never wish any harm to come to them, You get a little bit of a spark when you see them pulled over on the side of the street by that police officer. (laughs) Serves them right. Oh, wait, I forgive them. It's an inside thing. And we can recognize it when we're honest. The greed, the stealing, is covered a couple of times. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. But what about our words? That doesn't seem like as big a deal. In fact, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard Christians, those who, at the very least, wear the jersey, who belong to the church, even those who stand and teach others, have said, "God's really not concerned with the things I say. Customs no big deal, right? Doesn't really matter. I can." Have all my sarcastic, snarky jokes at someone else's expense. That's not that has nothing to do with my faith. The put downs, that's just funny. And yet, excuse me, and yet the Bible has a lot to say about our speech, our communication, our words. The book of Proverbs is flooded with the idea, and Jesus was pretty clear. That there is no just when it comes to our words. It's never just words. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. If you have Ephesians, go back to the left until you find names you recognize Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew's the first of them. Matthew chapter 12. Many of you have some red letters in your Bible. Starting with verse 33, in those red letters we see Jesus saying, by the way, the red letters are editorial. That's not inspired color for your Bible. But they do help us to, to notice the words of Christ. Verse 33 the Lord says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. In other words, what's inside comes out. Okay? The, the, the fruit is less the issue than what produces the fruit. It's the root. It's the health of the plant of the tree that produces good or bad fruit. Good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. Conversely, when you see good fruit on a tree, you can know that there is a basic health to it. When you see bad fruit, you can recognize that's not normal, that's not right. There's either something wrong with the plant or there is something from outside destroying that fruit. But the fruit and the tree go together from the inside. But notice what he says next, verse 34. You brood of vipers. He's speaking to the religious leaders who are accusing him and, and trying to trap him and accusing him of, of uh, casting out demons by Beelzebub. <laughs> he says, you brood of vipers. Jesus is really soft-spoken, isn't he? Can we just put to bed this whole Jesus is the nicest guy in the world lie? Jesus did not try To be nice. He was, however, always loving, kind, compassionate, full of grace. But we make up this nice thing so that if we just make everybody feel good all the time, that's good. That is not good. Jesus spoke truth and he spoke it directly. And in this particular case, we see an example of Jesus actually speaking harshly in his direct condemnation. You bunch of snakes. The things that come out of our mouths must be suitable to the situation. 34, you brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? Let it sink in. I, I think in my mind, I just speculate, I imagine that as Jesus said these things to them, there is a pregnant pause here. You snakes! How can you stand here and think that you're saying anything worth saying? Because you're evil on the inside. How can you say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. From the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you, mark this well guys. If I'm underlining in my Bible, this is a place to underline. But I tell you that everyone will have to give give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted and by your words you'll be condemned. Jesus is making it very clear here that when it comes to our words, there is no Just, no merely. Turn the page to the right and find the book of Luke, chapter 6. A parallel here, but I think it's worth reading for us. Luke, chapter 6. Jesus says it pretty concisely here, verses 43 to 45. to the book of James. James comes right after Hebrews, right before Peter's letters. They get kind of skinny toward the back of your Bible. James chapter 3. James starts in verse 1 saying not many of you should become teachers my fellow believers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. He's not saying don't become teachers. He's making the point that you are accountable for your words and when you are a teacher people look to you. They hang on your words. So when you say false things that lead others astray there is a higher accountability for it. Those who teach are held more accountable So take charge of your own words. We see that play out in the context as it follows. He says in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. Everybody. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect or complete, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Now, My daughters show horses, or my youngest daughter still shows horses. Some of you have been in this situation. And she got a new horse this year. I thought her last horse was big. This horse's head weighs as much as my daughter does. You know, it's just, I'm like, I don't even know how people do these Clydesdales and draft horses. These are behemoths, right? So Redford's a big, he's a big old dog. And yet my little tiny daughter can get on him, put a bit in his mouth, and make him go where she wants him to go. There's a lot of power in that little bit with this big animal. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large. Now picture in your mind sailing ships. right? It it applies to, to any kind of a ship. They work the same way. But picture a big sailing ship. right? Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder and is itself set on fire by hell. Do you think it's a big deal? I mean, this is is pretty strong talk right here. James, the half-brother of Jesus, same mama, different daddy. James grew up with Jesus, learning the same things. He later becomes the leader of the church, the pastor of Jerusalem. He knows what he's talking about. Not to mention the fact that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit through his pen. And so as James is saying this, he's not messing around. He says, your mouth has power. And that power is dangerous. I love that he uses the example of fire. Because fire is a powerful, helpful, life-giving thing. But when handled wrongly, when it's not handled judiciously, and it's out of control, it is among the most destructive forces imaginable. Ask anyone from California. Fire is powerful. So is our speech, our tongue, the things that come out of our mouths. Verse 7. James writes, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. He sort of switches his metaphor slightly here. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. If you think you've got it handled by your strength, discipline, and willpower, think again. You don't. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. Verse 9. And with it, We curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Let me read that again, because I don't know if we really grab it. I don't know if we really think about it all the way through. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. Didn't we sing praise songs here today? We sang songs of the, the greatness of our God. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing the praises of our Lord God Almighty. And yet, how many of us just in the last 24 hours have said hateful things about someone? Don't raise your hand. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we, we curse. We bring down condemnation, cursing. It's not just speaking of, of you know using bad language here, but speaking evil of or toward another person. Verse 10, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Our words are not just a big deal. They're a huge deal. Huge. Proverbs connects the reality of God with the realities of everyday life. It's one of the reasons that it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. Here's the truth of God. Here's applying it in practical, everyday ways. Here's how you handle your money. Here's how you handle your sexuality. Here's how you handle your family. Here's how you you pursue wisdom in these ways. Here are things to avoid. Here are things to do. And over and over, you may notice in your program, there's a, in the list of scriptures, there's an abundance of scriptures from the book of Proverbs. Not by accident. Also not exhaustive. There's more in there. That's just what I put down for you. And I skipped a bunch. God connects through the book of Proverbs this reality the connection between our speech and specifically its impact on others. We all remember what we learned as kids, don't we? You know. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? You didn't sound convincing. You don't remember, do you? Let's try it again. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but? Yeah, names will never hurt me. Words will never hurt me right so these are these are really important things that we learn from our kids except for that's not entirely true is it I read a quote from someone uh, rephrasing that I thought fit pretty well sticks and stones may break my bones but words cause permanent psychological damage (laughs) seems a little more fitting The first one is what we learned as kids for our parents and elementary school teachers to say, suck it up and quit tattling on your friends. That that was the point. But the reality is those words stick. I was just sharing with some folks recently, in 1995, in going through a personal spiritual inventory and uh, trying to deal with places that I maybe didn't forgive and I needed to deal with it, I realized that I was still harboring resentment and pain from my elementary school librarian who mocked the way I spelled my name in front of the class when I was in second grade. And it shaped me. Now that sounds like a silly little thing, doesn't it? What kind of a petty thing to bother me? But without thinking of it consciously every day, it was in my mind and deep in my heart. And I needed God's Holy Spirit to ferret that out and allow me to forgive that so that I could move on and take hold of my own faculties. Words have a lasting, powerful impact. So when Paul is talking about this in Ephesians 29, he is bringing to bear on this both elements of the inside job coming out and the impact of our words on others. But wait, there's more. What do we see in Isaiah 6? When Isaiah has this vision of the Lord, and he's overwhelmed by the holiness of God, as he's seeing these burning flame-being angels flying around, Too ashamed before God. These perfect, burning ones. That's what seraphim means. Too ashamed before the holiness of God. They're without sin, bear in mind. So much so that they cover their faces and feet in humility before Him. As they are speaking the praises of God, calling out the thrice holy character of God the fullness of His holiness, Isaiah is dumbstruck. We overuse the word awesome. This is truly awesome. Awe-inspiring. He sees this, and the only thing that he can do is fall on his face and say, I am dead, I'm dead, I'm, I'm ruined. Why does he say that? because I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. What was he talking about? Why did, why did this impact him so? And why doesn't he say unclean hands or any other body part? Why does he focus on the unclean lips so much? And why when God Demonstrates his atoning forgiveness by having this burning angel take a coal from the altar, which let it sink in that this is too hot for the burning angel to touch in its holiness toward God. The burning angel uses tongs from the altar to take this coal and to cleanse Isaiah by touching his lips with this. He touches his lips. Our words reflect what's inside of us. And the way we speak, the things we say, give glory or steal glory from God. If I don't get my speech right, I'm not going to get anything right. And if I get my speech right, according to what James tells us here, everything else is going to follow. Because for me to get my speech right, if the Bible is telling the truth and we know that it is, I can't fix that myself. It has to be an inside job. From the Holy Spirit living in me, taking hold of what's inside and changing it so that the things that come out of my mouth are no longer uncontrolled, unholy, silly, unhelpful, selfish things. In researching for this, I came across a a book by a man named John McWhorter. John McWhorter is a liberal atheist, but he's one of the preeminent linguists of our time. And I don't have time to go into it today. I'll bring some of these things out probably when we speak about speech again. But he talked about the fact that there is something in us, something visceral, something gut level that sparks when we use what he refers to as curses or swears or foul language. It actually uses a different part of the brain. Most of our speech comes from the left side of the brain and is logical. But when we we watch a scan of the brain, it lights up the right side when we let fly an expletive. There's something different, something deeper. All of this comes together to give us a picture That what comes out of us flows from what is inside of us. When Jesus said to the religious leaders, It's not what you eat, it's not what goes into you that defiles you, it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. That's the principle he wants us to see. What is in comes out. All right, time for us to start filling in some blanks. Let's start moving forward. We got three general areas we want to look at at as we have. I will not have you look up a lot of scriptures during this uh, portion so that we can move through it, but you will want to be checking out uh, some of the scriptures that have been listed for you, and I'm going to do my best to resist the craving to turn to them, because even as I'm saying this, my fingers already want to start moving. But we're going to look at reflecting the the reality of Christ. We're going to talk about how we break God's heart with our words. We're going to take a look at what it means for us. How How do we put on a life that fits? First, reflecting the reality of Christ. We reflect the reality of Christ when our words help others see His character in us. We reflect the reality of Christ when our words help others see His character in us. Remember, as we're getting into chapter four, we're getting into the practice of what Christian living looks like, it's all standing on the foundation of the first three chapters that tell us who we are in Christ. It's Christ that makes the change. I no longer belong to myself, as 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, I've been bought at a price. I belong to Him. So the right response, in light of everything that God has done, is, Romans 12, 1, to make myself a living sacrifice for Him. He's Lord. He calls the shots. What I'm doing is drawing from the well of the Spirit of Christ in me, the Holy Spirit that has sealed me for redemption, I'm drawing from that well so that His character comes out through me. Because I already know my character is what got me dead in the first place my character is that salt water it's not in that well anymore the problem is we don't really have a delete button on our brains right so every once in a while a little bit of the old residue falls into the well and we got to we got to deal with that so when we sin as paul says in romans 7 it's not us anymore it's sin still dwelling with us still still here i still carry this body around i still have the habits of my mind it took me my whole life to get this messed up it doesn't get unmessed up in my practice immediately that takes the rest of my life for the holy spirit to perfect and he will so, if I'm going to reflect the reality of Christ, my words, the things that come out of my mouth, the things that come out of my fingertips into a keyboard or a phone, all of my communication, my speech needs to look like Jesus. So that when people see me, they notice a difference. And it's not just, hey, he used to use that word and those words and filth, foul, filthy, foul, filthy, terrible, McNasty stuff coming out of your mouth. Yes, that, but that's kind of low-level stuff. It's that the gossip is gone and the slander is gone and the meanness is gone. The snarky comebacks are gone. There's a... I'm not going to get into the the difficulties with it, but uh, back in the 90s, some of you remember the 90s, There was a popular movement that came out of the Charles M. Sheldon book, In His Steps, which I recommend. It's a tremendous book. There's some downfalls, but it's a tremendous book. And Sheldon put forth the the proposition that that we ought to try in this novel, try living, making every decision by asking what would Jesus do. Now the downfall of that is you've got to actually know what Jesus would do which is difficult unless you've actually seen what he did in the scriptures. But the principle still remains. As we apply that, it became very popular in the 90s, and you remember the kids had the bracelets and the shirts and WWJD and all that kind of stuff. And it became very behavioral, and that's the downside. But the reality of it is that's a pretty decent measure of some things. The way I speak... Is that something that Jesus would say? When I'm insulted, would Jesus respond the way I want to respond? That thing I want to post on on my social media, is that something Jesus would post if he were posting on social media? That favorite word that comes out of my mouth, can I picture that coming out of the mouth of Christ? If I'm going to reflect the reality of Christ, then my words need to help the people around me see what he is like. And see the reality of Christ in me. It needs to reflect him and help others see his character in us. So how is it that we break God's heart with our words? Again, this is specifically for believers. Notice in, excuse me, uh, we're looking at verse 29, but look at what, what happens in verse 30. And really, the rest of the chapter. Verse 29: Do not look, I'm sorry, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Okay, so what's supposed to come out is the positive things, not just neutral, not just empty, wasted words but the things that are going to build others up, that are going to bring them closer to Christ, that are going to reflect Him, right? According to their needs, suitable to the situation, that it may benefit, that they would be better off, that it would bring grace. Your, Your translation might say something about that it would grace them or bless them, that it would benefit those who listen or those who hear. I want to suggest to you that the things that we say don't just impact the person we say them to, but those around who happen to catch it. Many of us can identify with the reality as parents that children pick up values that we're not teaching them. Most of the values are caught rather than taught. So if I tell them about Jesus, but my mouth uses Jesus' name as a swear word, Guess what they're learning? I have to recognize that it needs to benefit those who hear, not only those that I'm intentionally speaking to, but those around. So, verse 30, though. Verse 30 is where it starts to kick. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I can't tell you how many different things I've heard over the years about what it means to grieve the Spirit of God. And we put all kinds of specific meanings on it that really don't fit the context. Remember that this is written in a context as God inspires the writer through logical connections. So when we see don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, Paul's not jumping off the the tracks here to go talk about something else. It's connected to what he's saying live in a way that is worthy. When we don't do that, when we live like who we were rather than who we are, it literally here makes the Spirit of God sad. It breaks God's heart. How do we do this? First, we speak in an unholy way. We speak in an unholy way. You can picture in this, if if, if these are, are Baskets that we're organizing our our different kinds of speech in, as we look at these, you might put things in this basket that are foul or profane or crass. Things that are like the world. When we talk about unholy, it's the opposite of holy. Holy is set apart for God. So when we have speech, when we have words that are not set apart for God, they are unholy. We'll talk more about those things in coming weeks. Foul, profane, crass. There's a, there are, there's a tendency right now to be teaching... I, I'm going to resist the urge to start going off on this, but I really want to. There's a tendency to teach a lowering of God's standards of holiness I want to urge you, as those who have been brought from death to life, to resist that lie. God's standards have not changed, and they never will. Words are not simply social constructs that are randomly and arbitrarily made up, but they represent thoughts and concepts. Social constructs? Yes, absolutely. There's a contract between us that when I say something, you grab a meaning from it. It comes from within, and it says something outside that we can actually connect on. So when I say dog, you know what I mean, right? This is true with all words. There's meaning. And when I use words with meanings or contexts, that dishonor God, I speak in an unholy way. When I speak in ways that are like the world, that are boastful and proud and arrogant, that speak of this world as if it is the world, as if this temporal reality is all that matters. All of these things go in that, that, that bucket, if you will, of unholy words. I break God's heart with my words not only when I speak in an unholy way, but when we speak in an unhelpful way. We speak in in an unholy way. When I speak in an unhelpful way, it grieves the Holy Spirit. When I speak in a secular concept, it's what might be called, there's a book to this effect, Christian atheism. I profess Christ, but my actions say otherwise. I believe in God, but I live as if there is no God. So then when I speak, I say things that are fine, but not helpful. I am leading people to believe that their life is okay in this world, and that's all there is, no matter what I say on Sundays. We see this, by the way, in so much of education and Politics in so many settings. You can have your religion here in this box, but we all know that truth is really here. So, you know, we can tell you: here's what we believe. Here's the secular worldview that we're promoting, that we're teaching, and it's fine for you to believe what you believe, as long as you keep it over here and recognize that it is less. It's secondary. When we speak in this manner, it is unhelpful. When we speak in that way. We act as if this world is our home. When we speak in an unhelpful way, we are using words and ideas that fail to point others to Christ. Our role as ambassadors is to represent Him. People cannot believe in the one of whom they have not heard. And how are they going to believe if they don't hear? And how are they going to hear if we don't tell them? we got to be able to speak in a helpful way. Unholy, unhelpful. Next, we see that we break God's heart, God's heart with our words when we speak in an unloving way. When we speak in an unloving way. Words that are selfish, harsh, vengeful, biting. These are words from the flesh. My flesh in its nature is unloving. If you've ever watched, as some of you can remember uh, Sunday nights, you watch Disney, uh, uh, Wonderful World of Disney, and then you watch uh, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, and now you got Nat Geo and all these channels that show these just absolutely brutal things in nature. And it's okay, because it's the natural way. And yet, we want to promote natural life among us as humans when we live according to the flesh, according to our nature, we're just like that. We tear one another apart. Maybe we don't do it physically, although yes. But we do it with our words. Our words have teeth. And we speak in unloving ways. I focused my words according to my feelings, my sense of justice. Over the feelings of others or God's word. There's a difference between niceness, making everybody feel good all the time, whether it's relevant or not, and kindness. Kindness, saying what needs to be said, when it needs to be said, in a way that is loving and compassionate and takes their feelings into account. Niceness might mean I never talk to you about Jesus because I don't want to offend you kindness means I'm going to tell you that you're going to hell and you can be saved and I'm going to do it in a way that is motivated by my love for you and demonstrates a loving tone because I love you too much to let you go to hell without a fight we speak in an unholy way we speak in an unhelpful way we speak in an unloving way Fourth, we speak in an untruthful way. We spent a lot of time on this recently, so I won't spend time on it today, but our mouths are vessels of deceit. Much of what we see about our speech in the book of Proverbs focuses on dishonest talk, misleading talk, taking advantage of others' talk. When we speak in an untruthful way, we break the heart of God. Fifth, we speak in an uncontrolled way. We speak in an uncontrolled way. This is the one place I want to have you actually turn in the scriptures to 1 Corinthians. You're going back to the left. First Corinthians chapter 14. It's an interesting placement in my mind anyway. Maybe it's not interesting for you. You may not have noticed this before, but 1 Corinthians 14 comes immediately after 1 Corinthians 13. Shocking, eh? So, 1 Corinthians 13, likewise, follows on the heels of 1 Corinthians 12. See, my math is awesome right here. 1 Corinthians 12 is talking to the church about not getting along, having jealousy toward one another, criticizing one another, because I want these gifts and you've got them. and How come she gets to sing the solo? How How come they get to be in charge? And they got all kinds of fighting and backbiting going on. And so Paul addresses it the same way he does with the Ephesians, only this is a correction. And he says, look, you're all part of one body. Your body's not all made up of hands. Can you imagine? I mean, look, this is like a, a, some kind of a Salvador Dali nightmare kind of thing, right? Just all these weird, surrealist pictures come to my mind. If you were all hands, how messed up would that be? But you need all the rest of your various 2,000 parts, as the old commercial said. So he gets into that in chapter 12. And then he says, you know, in keeping with this, Because we're one body with many parts, and we have all these gifts that God's given us for the building up of the body, let me show you the most excellent way. Let me tell you how you get along within the body. And then he goes into what is one of the most familiar passages in Scripture, usually out of context. We call it the love chapter. and We we read it at weddings, and we put it on greeting cards and, and mugs and all these different things. But what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 is, in light of how you can't get along, let me tell you how you can with a love that reflects the reality of Christ. And immediately following this idea of the love that reflects the reality of Christ, we see chapter 14. My heading in the NIV, in the lesser NIV, the 2011 edition, if you know, you know, has the heading intelligibility in worship. The heck does that mean? See, i got to control my speech here as I say these things, euphemisms. Anyhow, let's read. Follow follow the way of love, he says in verse 1, and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. This is the context that came from chapter 12. Especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue, speaking in these uh, these unknown languages that that they're dealing with, there's a lot of things we could talk about with that, not the point. The point is, rather than in an unknown tongue that that the people in the congregation don't know, anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening. So again, echoing what he says in Ephesians, it's for the benefit of those who listen. In the context of this, he gives details about how this is supposed to look. Let's jump to verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp or guitar or drums or things like that, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. Words have meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I'll pray with my spirit but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving, since they don't know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign. Not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers and unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? You maybe have seen church services like that. It's like, these people are nuts. There's no chance I'm going back there. There's a lot of crazy going on. In case you're missing this, the point here has less to do with tongues than it has to do with crazy. He's saying, don't do things that don't help people. Don't speak in a way that people don't understand. Use your mind and take control. We're getting to the point here coming up. Verse 24, but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin. Speaking words they don't understand, not helpful. Speaking from God, the words of God. They're convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare so they'll fall down and worship God exclaiming, God is really among you. He comes to the point, verse 26, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, don't miss that, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged, The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. In other words, God does not speak through you in a way that disengages your mind and self-control. God does not do that. I didn't make it up. He's saying it right here. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the Lord's people. We'll stop there. As we look at this idea, here's what he's talking about. If I'm going to speak in a way that reflects the reality of Christ, I have to take control of my words. I can't just let it flow. I can't just let the flesh have control. When we speak in an uncontrolled way, an undisciplined way, we break the heart of God. Wrapping this up, putting on a life that fits. Three things we need to see here. How do I put on the new life? How do I I speak life? How do I use words that reflect the reality of Christ? First, Use words according to God's character. Use words according to God's character. Choose to speak truth and love. Speak the revealed word of God. When you speak your own words, speak in a way that is consistent with the revealed word of God. If it doesn't match up with the reality of God, then keep it out of the reality of your everyday experience. Speak truth, And it will bring life. Use words according to God's character. If you can't picture that phrase, that word coming out of the mouth of Christ, run from it. Dump it. Take out the trash. Secondly, use words according to God's priorities. Use words according to God's character. Use words according to God's priorities. What is it that God wants for us to do? We've seen in the first three chapters his priorities in bringing all things together under his kingdom rule in Christ. And he does this through his church as we reflect the reality of Christ as his ambassadors. So if God's priority is to display his glory to the world through his people, then I need to bear that in mind in the way I talk. It's no longer just about my priorities and how I feel or what I think should be said or could be said or I could justify in my saying. It's entirely now about God's priorities. My words need to minister grace and life to others. Third, if I'm going to walk worthy of my calling in regarding my speech, I need to use words according to God's wisdom. I need to use words according to God's wisdom. What, what principles does God give us in governing this? I need to use my words judiciously, sparingly, decently, and in an orderly fashion. Proverbs 10.19 is a verse that I've often quoted to my daughter, my children in general. Where words are many, sin is not absent. So be sensible and keep your mouth shut. That's the New Living Translation. I just really enjoy that. When we speak a lot, we're more likely to say dumb stuff. And as a person who tends toward the loquacity of speech, it's very easy for me to say too much. You're probably thinking that right now. We're ready to go. Let's get out of here. We have to be very careful in using our words judiciously, sparingly. I want to finish with this poem that I heard when I was a, a young man. The author is unknown. I think you will grasp the point, and many of you have heard it. If all that we say in a single day, with never a word left out, were printed each night in clear black and white, twould prove strange reading, no doubt. And then, just suppose, ere our eyes we could close, we must read the whole record through, then wouldn't we sigh and wouldn't we try? a great deal less talking to do. And I more than half think that many a kink would be smoother in life's tangled thread if half that we say in a single day were left forever unsaid. And all God's people said, Amen. When my words fail to build up others to the glory of God, I am not walking worthy of who I am in Christ. I need to remember that the words that come out of us must reflect and flow from God's character in us. Let's remember this as we take charge of our words and let no unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only the kind of talk that is helpful, useful in building up others according to their needs. Let's pray together. Father God, I want to thank you for your holy word. You have given us the words of life. And Father, as we close the service, I'm reminded of Psalm 19. As the very creation itself speaks, cries, sings your glory. It doesn't have words as we do and yet the speech is clear. the heavens declare your glory but father as the psalmist reminds us your word is perfect your law gives life and it builds us up you have revealed yourself not merely in the pictures of nature but by words in the bible that you have given to us May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.